The following audio is from Shiloh Presbyterian Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. More information about Shiloh Presbyterian Church is available at shilohopc.org. We're going to be looking at the text here beginning in Exodus chapter 15, verse 22, and going all the way to Exodus chapter 17, verse 7. This is the word of the Lord. Then Moses made Israel to set out from the Red Sea, and they went into the wilderness of Sur. And they went three days in the wilderness and found no water. And when they came to Marah, they could not drink the water of Marah because it was bitter. Therefore it was named Marah. And the people grumbled against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? And he cried out to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a log. And he threw it into the water, and the water became sweet. There the Lord made for them a statute and a rule. And there he tested them, saying, If you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God, and do what it, uh, that which is right in his eyes, and give ear to his commandments, and keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians. For I am the Lord, your healer. And then they came to Elam where there were twelve springs of water and seventy palm trees, and they encamped there by the water. And they set out from Elam, and all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai, on the fifteenth day of the second month after they had departed from the land of Egypt. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, Uh, Would that we would have died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to to the full. For you have brought us out into the wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. And then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am about to rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day, that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not." On the sixth day, when they prepared what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. So Moses and Aaron said to all the people of Israel, At evening you shall know that it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord, because he has heard your grumbling against the Lord. For what are we that you grumble against us? And Moses said, When the Lord gives you in the evening meat to eat and in the morning bread to the full, because the Lord has heard your grumbling that you grumbled against him, what are we? Your grumbling is not against us, but against the Lord. And then Moses said to Aaron, Say to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, Come near before the Lord, for he has heard your grumbling. And as soon as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, they looked towards the wilderness, and behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in a cloud. And the Lord said to Moses, I have heard the grumblings of the people of Israel. Say to them, At twilight you shall eat meat, in the morning you shall be filled with bread. Then you shall know that I am the Lord your God. In the evening quail came up and covered the camp, and in the morning dew lay around the camp. And when the dew had gone up, there was on the face of the wilderness a fine flake-like thing, fine like frost on the ground. When the people of Israel saw it, they said to one another, What is this? For they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, It is the bread that the Lord has given you to eat. This is what the Lord has commanded. Gather of it, each one of you, as much as he can eat. You shall take Uh, An omer, according to the number of the persons uh, that each of you has in his tent. And the people of Israel did so. They gathered some more, some less. But when they measured it with an omer, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered a little had no lack. Each one of them gathered as much as he could eat. And Moses said to them, Let no one leave uh, any of it over till the morning. But they did not listen to Moses. Some left part of it till the morning. And it bred worms and stank, and Moses was angry with them. Morning by morning they gathered it, each as much as he could eat. But when the sun grew hot, it melted. On the sixth day they gathered twice as much bread, two omers each. 
And when all the leaders of the congregation came and told Moses, he said to them, This is what the Lord has commanded. Tomorrow is a day of solemn rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. Bake what you will bake and boil what you will boil. And all that is left over lay aside to be kept till morning. So they laid it aside till the morning as Moses commanded them. And it did not stink and there were no worms in it. Moses said, Eat it today, for today is a Sabbath to the Lord. Today you will not find it in the field. Six days you shall gather it, but the seventh day, which is a Sabbath, there will be none. On the seventh day, some of the people went out to gather, but they found none. And the Lord said to Moses, How long will you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? See, the Lord has given you the Sabbath. Therefore, on the sixth day, he gives you bread for two days. Remain each of you in his place and let no one go out of his place on the seventh day. So the people rested on the seventh day. Now the house of Israel called its name manna. It was like coriander seed, white, and it tasted, and its taste was like the taste of wafer made with honey. And Moses said, This is what the Lord God has commanded. Let an omer of it be kept throughout your generations, so that they may see the bread with which I fed you in the wilderness when I brought you out of the land of Egypt. And Moses said to Aaron, Take a jar and put an omer of manna in it, and place it before the Lord to be kept throughout your generations. And the Lord commanded Moses, so Aaron, and as the Lord commanded Moses, rather, so Aaron placed it before the testimony to be kept. The people of Israel ate the manna forty years till they came to a habitable land. They ate manna till they came to the border of the land of Canaan. And Omer is a tenth part of an ephah. All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages, according to the commandment of God, and camped at Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water. And the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried to the Lord, What shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. And behold, I will stand before you there on the rock of Horeb. And you shall strike the rock, and the water, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah, because of the quarreling of the people of Israel, and because they tested the Lord, saying, Is the Lord among us or not? This is the word of God. Let's pray and ask his blessing upon us this evening as we study it together. Gracious Heavenly Father, we pray as we come to this passage, a passage in which we see your grace in stark contrast to your people's forgetfulness and your people's grumbling, begrudging, forgetfulness of your goodness towards them. We pray, O Father, that you would remind us of your goodness and your love towards your people in the Lord Jesus Christ. We ask, O Lord, that you would be with us and that you would be with the meditations of all our hearts and the words of my mouth as we come together to hear from you this evening. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I've, I've been telling people that this is truly the most wonderful time of the year. I think many people think I'm referring to Christmas What I'm actually referring to is the end of the fall semester. Uh, It's a wonderful time for those of us who have just been studying for several months and preparing, as it were, for uh, the end of our semester study and preparing recently, I'm sure many of you who are students, uh, for examinations, for tests. You see, uh, tests, though we dread them, and though for some of us, myself, maybe chief among us, uh, they are anxiety-producing. They have a purpose, and they have a place, don't they? Uh, 
You can think about it for a second. I mean, the most obvious thing that we learn from a test is, well, what the teacher is seeking to learn. Whether or not the student has grasped the concepts that he's trying to impress upon them, right? The reason the teacher administers the examination is to see if he was able to bridge that sometimes insurmountable gap between what he is trying to teach and the student's mind. But at the same time, if you're like me, examinations don't just teach the teacher, or rather tell the teacher how well the student did. A lot of times, whenever it comes time to see the results of those examinations, we don't just learn about how well we knew the material, but we also learn about the character of the professor, don't we? We learn if we're faced with a harsh teacher or with a gracious teacher. You see, testing, exams, they demonstrate both to the student and to the teacher some pretty important information, don't they? And as we consider this rationale and these observations about test-taking and examinations in this world, it's interesting to see that what we're looking at in front of us in this text is actually a test administered by Yahweh God to his own covenant people to see if they have learned the lessons which he's been trying to teach them in Exodus chapter 1 through Exodus chapter 15. And as we look upon the Lord's testing of his people, we are sadly faced with the inevitable conclusion that his people do not seem to have learned much. It's really quite amazing, isn't it? The people of Israel have been, as it were, in the classroom of God. They have been receiving a master class in the glory, in the grace of Yahweh. And yet, even faced with such miraculous events as the beginning of chapter 15 and chapter 14, where they've just been praising God for his wonderful acts of deliverance towards the people of Israel, he has split the sea in two and brought his people through on dry land. They still, it seems, have not quite figured out who this God is. They haven't figured out that God is a God who is committed to his covenant people. They haven't figured out that God is a God who protects, who provides, and who is present with his covenant people. They haven't gotten the material that Yahweh has been seeking to teach them through their thick heads. Now we would be tempted here to look upon them and be rather judgmental towards them if it wasn't the case that every single one of us can be just as thick. And we know that. And we know that often our hearts are like the people of Israel's hearts. But what's so great about this passage is that this passage is a passage that is full of tests, but it's also a passage in which the Lord begins to reinforce what his people need to learn. And that's what we see, isn't it? Uh, we see as we begin to look at the text in uh, verses 22 of 27 of chapter 15 that the Lord reiterates who he is in relation to the people of Israel. He reiterates in there in particular that he is one who is a protector of the people of Israel. In particular, he uses the language of healer. He is not an enemy of the people. He is a friend of the people. He is their healer. He is their protector. We go to verse or chapter 16, considering the whole chapter, really, the great theme of the chapter is that God is a God who provides for his people. We see that the Lord provides for his people, even when it doesn't look like it. Even when it looks like there's no possibility of them being able to find anything to eat, the Lord provides, as he's already shown. He reiterates again. And then as we come to chapter 17, uh, we see that the people there doubt uh, that the Lord is present with them. Uh, we see that from the very end of our text. You see it in verse 7 of that chapter. The people there tested the Lord by saying, Is the Lord among us? Incredibly, after everything they've been through, they still need God to teach them this, this other aspect of his 
commitment to them that he is a God who is present with his people. And that's what we're going to see this evening as we examine this text at a rather high level. We're going to see that God is a God who protects his people, that God is a God who provides for his people, and God is a God who is always present with his people. Now let's begin then by considering the first section of our text, starting at verse 22 of chapter 15. Here we meet the people for the first time in this a transitionary section of the book of Exodus. You see, the book of Exodus up to this point has been a story largely about the people of Israel in Egypt. It's been a story about what God is doing to, to crush the Egyptians and to deliver the people of Israel out of the house of bondage. But now uh, we see that the focus of the book is shifting. It's shifting towards Mount Sinai. And it does so here as the people begin to set out in that direction. They begin to set out towards the mountain of God where he will make his covenants with his people. And we see that then, that Moses and the people of Israel, they set out there in verse 22 from the Red Sea and they enter into the wilderness. Now this is very significant. Just to give you a high-level overview, the people of Israel will spend a lot of time in the wilderness. And those of you who know the Pentateuch, you know that. We'll see the wilderness theme picked back up in the book of Numbers, rather in a more negative light, actually. But it's important, though, at this point to realize that the wilderness is seen as a hostile environment. It's seen of a, as a place of trial. It's seen as a place of temptation. It's seen as a place of testing. And that's what the Lord is going to do while the people are in the wilderness. He's going to test them, test their trust of him in particular. So they set out. They set out into the wilderness. And they they go three days into the wilderness. And at this point, they find no water. And when they come to this place, Mara, that we see in verse 23, they have a significant problem. The water there is undrinkable. The water is undrinkable because it's bitter, the text tells us. Now, just to be clear, this is not a question of taste. This is not a question of, uh, well, you know, we could drink the water, uh, but we don't want to. No, no. What the text is telling us here is that this water is undrinkable water. It's not fit to be drink, uh, drunk. And immediately uh, we, we can hear... In this text, echoes of what we've seen in the rest of the book of Exodus, can't we? Think about that very first, that very first act of God as he begins to judge the people of Egypt. What does he do? Well, he, he turns their water into blood. He takes away their drinkable water. And that, that's important as the text develops. We'll, we'll see that there. But the people, though, being confronted with this bitter water, what do they do? Well, they don't cry out to the Lord and say, Lord, please provide for us. You see, they don't complain the way the psalmist complains or the way we might complain in a a biblical way to the Lord. Why, Father? Provide for me in this case, Father. No, No, that's not the attitude that they adopt. Rather, they immediately begin to grumble against Moses, the mediator. And they say, what shall we drink? We can hear this is an accusatory question that the people of of Israel are asking here. And it's Moses then who cries out to the Lord. And the Lord shows him a log. And he throws it into the water and the water becomes sweet. Thus the Lord shows, as he will at many times and at many ways in our passage, that he is present and that he is with the people in the wilderness. But the text continues there, and we note that the Lord gives us a bit of commentary on what he's doing. The Lord made for them a statue, the text tells us, uh, continuing in verse 25. He made for them a statute and a rule, and there he tested them, saying, If you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God and do that which is right in his eyes and give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord your 
healer. Now note what he's just said there. He said, let me be clear. You just confronted a situation very similar to the one you saw in Egypt, where I took away the drinking water of the people of Egypt as a judgment to you. But that's not what I'm doing here. What I'm doing here is I'm testing you to see if you trust me, to see if you'll obey me, to see if you have faith that I am who I have been showing you I am. He's assuring them here, if they may have adopted the mistaken opinion, that they've been brought out into the wilderness to perish because in some way they are enemies of God, that he is not their enemy, he's their friend, he's their healer, he's their protector, he's the one who brings him into the wilderness. Yes, but he brings him into the wilderness to demonstrate his goodness and not his judgment like he had done in Egypt. And that's why he says there, I'm not going to bring upon you the diseases that I put on the Egyptians. Now, the word diseases there is meant to to have a broader connotation. Obviously, turning blood to water is not a disease. But the idea is here that God is not going to afflict the nation of Israel, his people, the way he afflicted the nation of Egypt, his enemies. He is for the people of Israel, not against them. Though at times it may not appear to be the case, he is their God, and he is their protector. And as he does this, as he shows us this, we see a number of things. We see a number of things about the people of of Israel. Again, we've mentioned this already, but we see their amazing unbelief and their lack of trust in the Lord. Even though they've seen all that they've seen, they still at this point are not ready to trust the Lord. They're not ready to trust the Lord. And, and, and their grumbling is rooted in this unbelief, is it not? They're, they're, they're grumbling, they're complaining against Moses. We'll see it clearly later. It's not just a complaint against Moses, it's a complaint against God. It's a complaint against his wisdom, against his goodness, and against his commitment towards them. And it's rooted... And their unbelief, their unbelief that the Lord God is their God and that he is their people. And yet in the midst of this episode where the Lord reassures them and teaches them who he is in relation to them as their protector, as their healer, as their physician, he also conditions his actions towards them. You note that it would be easy to skip over that because really the emphasis here is on God's grace and his commitment towards the people, yet it would be a mistake because God's commitment to the people of Israel is not a, you know, get out of jail free card for sinning against the Lord God. He does not in any way mean to communicate that, and that's clear by what we read in in verse 26. He says very clearly that his goodness and provision for the people of Israel, it is in a sense sense conditioned upon them obeying the Lord. Now you might think that that's giving with one hand and taking away with the other. That's not what's happening here. You see, the Lord is explaining to the people that he is for them. He is their God. He's not going to turn against them the way he turned against the Egyptians. This is a different kind of thing that the Lord is advocating here. On the one hand, God smites his enemies. He judges those who stand in the way of him protecting and watching over his covenant people. But simultaneously, just as Israel is his beloved son in whom he has to rescue from the hands of the wicked Egyptians, simultaneously, Israel is his beloved son which he must discipline and chasten. This is not a doctrine that's foreign to the New Testament, friends, by the way. We could think, for instance, of Hebrews chapter 12, where we learn that the Lord chastens, he disciplines those whom he loves. And that's what the Lord is communicating to Israel here. If you sin against me, you can expect that you will face consequences. 
Not the consequences of being abandoned, but the consequences of being chastened. But as we turn from chapter 15 into the uh, to the body of chapter 16, we notice that there's a break in the text where they, where they leave their location and they go to another, and that's a pattern that we see throughout. The people pick up, they go somewhere else, and they find there a new test from the Lord. We see that as chapter 16 begins. They set out from Elam and, and all the congregation of, of the people of Israel that came to the wilderness of sin. And and there in the wilderness of sin, the whole congregation of the people of Israel, verse 2 tells us, grumbled again. They grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. Now, back in, in the first part of our chapter, we really didn't get much content as to what they said. They just asked a simple question, what shall we drink? Now, I, I suggest that this is an accusatory question here. But yet, when we get to, to verse 3 of chapter 16... We see the grumbling has escalated. Listen to the words that they speak here. The people of Israel said to Moses and Aaron here, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Think about what they're saying, friends. They're saying it would have been better for us if Yahweh would have killed us when he killed the Egyptians. Now, I could translate this into the vernacular of our day. I think it would go something like this. With friends like Yahweh, who needs an enemy? It's remarkable that they're able to say this. It would have been better for us to die in Egypt full and happy and quickly rather to be drug out into the desert by you, Moses and Aaron, and be starved to death. It's it's almost as if the people of Israel think that they serve a malicious deity at this point. A God who has cruelly brought them out into the desert, not to provide and protect them, but rather to torture them and to slowly kill them off. I think about what they are saying about the Lord. It is incredible. They're suggesting that God's character is not one of holiness and goodness and and faithfulness. They're suggesting that potentially it would have been better for them to have been an enemy of God than to be a friend of this God who seems so willing to let them perish in such a terrible way. Now that's a grumble. That's a complaint. And that exposes the heart of the people even more clearly than what we saw in the first part of the text. It's an amazing statement that they make here about the Lord. And yet, the text doesn't even say that Moses is is really able to speak to the Lord. You note at verse 4 that it's not Moses who goes to the Lord in this context. It's actually the Lord who who comes to Moses. And and he brings immediately a, a solution to the problem that looks so vexing to the people. He tells them, doesn't he, I'm about to rain bread from heaven. I'm I'm about to provide for the people of Israel. I see the problem that they're confronted with, and I am about to address it. One gets the feeling that if they would have just waited a moment, they would have come to realize that the Lord was going to provide for them. But rather being patient, rather than being patient, and rather than trusting the Lord, they doubt Him. They grumble against Him. And they expose their wickedness. They expose their wickedness and their hearts of unbelief. And yet the Lord does promise that he's going to provide for them. He promises that he will pour this bread from heaven and that he will give to them a day's portion every day. And you note at the end of, section, or at the end of verse 4 that he tacks this on. That I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. 
we see that they've already failed one test the Lord has administered here, but he's, he's giving them another test at this point. And what's the test? Well, that becomes clear as the chapter continues. Uh, we see, uh, for instance, uh, in, in verse 16 of chapter 16, that this is what the Lord has commanded the people. He, he tells them that he's going to bring them this bread, and he tells them that he's going to do this so that they shall know that he is the Lord and that he is their God. And he gives them, he gives them these stipulations. Gather of it, he says, each one of you, as much as he can eat. You shall take an omer according to the number of persons that each of you has in his tent. And it, it goes on. And he tells them that they are to only gather as much as they need. And the purpose of this is what? Well, the purpose is is that they would learn the lesson the Lord's trying to teach them. That they would learn that they can trust him. And you know what's going to happen later, right? Right? when they didn't listen to Moses and some of them left part of the manna until the morning they tried to store up enough so that they could have it for the next day why because they didn't trust that the Lord was going to bring about more manna the next morning and what happens that manna is destroyed it's destroyed verse 20 tells us they did not listen to Moses some left part of it until the morning and it bred worms and it stank And Moses was angry with them. He was angry with them for a good reason. Because again, they refused to trust the Lord. They refused to take him in his word. They refused to acknowledge his trustworthy character. They seek to do it themselves. We see it again as the text continues in 23. This is what the Lord has commanded. Tomorrow is a day of solemn rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. Bake what you will bake and boil what you will boil, and all that is left over lay aside to be kept till the morning. So they laid it aside till the morning as Moses commanded them, and it didn't stink. And there were no worms in it. Moses said, Eat today, for today is the Sabbath of the Lord. Today you will not find it in the field. Six days you shall gather it, but the seventh day, which is the Sabbath, there will be none. And yet the very next verse, on the seventh day, some of the people went out to gather, but found none. Again, they refuse to trust the Lord. They refuse to trust the message that he's seeking to communicate to uh, to them through his mediator Moses here. They refuse to believe that the Lord will provide for his people the way he said he will provide. They utterly refuse him. And we see in in the latter part of the text that the Lord sets or commands that there would be set aside a part of this manna. And the purpose for setting aside part of the manna is what? Well, it's so that the people of Israel would always have before them a reminder that the Lord will provide for them, that the Lord will be faithful to his people, that he will never leave them without. Throughout all their journeys, they will have this reminder, this omer of manna. By the way, think about it for a moment. That manna is supposed to do what? It's supposed to be consumed with worms, right, if it's kept overnight. And yet God miraculously preserves this particular portion of manna, So that they always have with them a visible sign. They can look upon it. They can look upon the fact that it's not rotten and filled with worms. They can look upon the fact that it's maintained its integrity 40 years and even longer. And they will have a physical representation of God's provision towards them. A reminder that God is who he says he is that he's faithful to his word. He's faithful to his word. I think it's important for us to make a few applications in particular out of chapter 16 that that really, I think, strike many of us. It's remarkable 
that the people of Israel in the wilderness, having been redeemed by Yahweh, look back longingly towards their bondage and oppression in Egypt. Now, how, how many of us have, have had that flash in our mind in the past, whenever we're having a day, perhaps we've faced some sort of persecution for being a Christian, perhaps someone has made fun of us, perhaps uh, some job we've been passed over because we've told them we won't work on the Lord's day, and we thought to ourselves, man, this is kind of inconvenient, following the commands of the Lord. Uh, Have you ever had a thought like that? And if you haven't, think think about the fact that these people are having that thought. They're, they're thinking to themselves that it would be better to have been left unredeemed. And not, not only, friends, is that it's an incredible statement of ungratefulness and unthankfulness to the Lord for what he has done. But it's also a testimony to a reality that I think we're all very familiar with. And that's the reality that just because the Lord has redeemed his people does not mean that life is hunky-dory from then on. You see, the Lord here has redeemed his people. He saved his people out of a desperate situation. And yet, at times, they find themselves thinking, wouldn't it be easier if that would have never happened to me? Wouldn't life be easier if I didn't have the constraints that Yahweh has placed on me? Wouldn't life be easier if I wasn't undergoing these testings, these trials, these difficulties in the wilderness? If it wasn't the case that I was surrounded on all sides by a hostile world, wouldn't it be easier? That's the thought that's crossing through their minds. Wouldn't it be better? It would be better to be Yahweh's enemies. And it points to the reality that The Lord does not deliver his people for the purpose of bringing them comfort and security in this world. He didn't deliver the people of Israel so that he might immediately transport them into the promised land. He delivered his people Israel, but he put them through testing, trials. Why? Well, for the purpose of refining their faith, for the purpose of teaching them who he was for the purpose of preparing them to enter into his promised land. And he does the same thing for us, does he not? The Christian life is a difficult life. It's a life of suffering unto glory. The Savior beckons us to come and follow him, and he does so saying, take up your cross and follow me. Just because you've been redeemed doesn't mean that life is easy now. And in this case, it was so hard for them in their minds that they would have rather it never happened. But we see something else in this text, and I think it's something rather encouraging. We see that the Lord is our provider, yes. But as we see that the Lord is our provider, we see that The reality that our God provides for us enables us to obey him boldly. Think about what the people of Israel do when they disobey him here, where they don't trust that he's the provider. And thus, when they don't trust that he's a provider, they don't obey him. Why? Because they think they need to help themselves because God's not going to help them. But the Lord repeatedly teaches them the lesson that, no, if you are faithful to me, you will meet with blessing. If you are faithful to me, you will meet with provision. Friends, I think we're faced on a regular basis with situations where we have to count the cost. Will I follow the Lord in this situation, even though it might mean I, I might lose my job? Will I be obedient to the Lord even when it's going to cost me friends, cost me influence, cost me all sorts of things in this world? And yet the Lord shows his people here and, as a testimony to us, demonstrates that if we will obey him, he will bless us in a very real sense. This isn't health and wealth. They're in the wilderness still. 
But it is a comfort and it is an encouragement to follow the Lord even when it looks like it's going to cost us something because he is faithful to his people. He's faithful to his people. As we move from chapter 16 into chapter 17, we meet with another instance when the people of Israel have picked up camp and they've moved. You see the congregation of the people of Israel has moved on from the wilderness of sin and now they've came to another location and they've camped there. And in verse 2, we find the people again quarreling with Moses. And this time, they're complaining about something that they've already complained about. We see there in verse 2, the people quarreled with Moses saying, Give us water to drink. Excuse me. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water. And the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? Remarkable. Again, the people grumble. Again, they fail to learn the lesson that God has been continually seeking to teach them. And perhaps what's most remarkable about this particular section is the language that the author uses here, Moses uses here. Notice in chapter 2, Moses tells him, you know, why do you quarrel with me? And then he makes an interesting statement. Why do you test the Lord? Why do you test the Lord? Now think about the change that's taken place in chapter 15 and in chapter 16. We've seen who doing the testing? We've seen the Lord doing the testing. We've seen God giving them, as it were, examinations. And we've seen them repeatedly failing those examinations. And we've seen God coming in, as it were, to re-educate them at every opportunity. To teach them, no, 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 you don't understand yet. I am with you. I am your protector. I am your provider. I am not going to forsake you. I'm not going to leave you in this wilderness to die. And yet here again, they have failed to understand it. And they again complain, why? Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? And they tested the Lord. They think about the impropriety of that. They think about the reversal of what's taken place up to this point. Who are they to test God? Especially in light of all the things that he's already done for them. If they need a test, they need to make sure God is the one who understands the situation correctly. No, that's totally insane. God has repeatedly demonstrated to them his goodness, his love, his care, his provision. And yet here, they take it upon themselves to test God. It's remarkable. The depths... The depths, really, of the sinfulness of their hearts at this point is astounding. After all this time, after all these evidences, they still don't get it. They still don't get it. And yet, perhaps, the only thing more amazing in this passage than than their own failure to understand what is so obvious before them is God's patience and forbearance with them. Because look at what he does. He doesn't smite them. I have to say, if I was in the position of Yahweh at this point, I would be like, guys, you know, three strikes and you're out and you've had like 17 of them, okay? This is, this is not good. You know, you, you are not getting it. I'm going to have to start over. But he doesn't do that, does he? What does he do? He shows them again his goodness towards them. It's interesting, we see in verse 7, and I pointed this out earlier, but we see in verse 7 that what they were really doing is they were really asking this question, is the Lord among us or not? Is the Lord among us or not? Now, if you have an original version of my outline from the back there, 
you'll, you'll notice here that I've subtly changed it. And that's because originally I had labeled this section, God demonstrates his patience with his people. And, and friends, I think that that is true. <laughs> here we are in a long line of failures, and God is still being patient with his people. But what's even more important in this section of the text is that God demonstrates again that he is present with his people, which is amazing. Because we see a holy God dwelling in the midst of a stiff-necked, hard-hearted, rebellious people. And yet he again affirms, I'm here. I'm with you. I am in your presence. The grace in these verses, it's unspeakable. It's marvelous. It's incredible. He provides again for them, doesn't he? Verse 5, after Moses has cried out to him, here's the mediator, the one who so beautifully typifies the Lord Jesus Christ as he acts as this intermediary between God and his people. Here he comes and he says, look, they're ready to stone me. They're ready to murder me, pack up and go back to Egypt. And what does the Lord say? He says, pass on before the people. Take with you some of the elders of Israel and take in your hand the staff. The staff with which you struck the Nile and go. And behold, I will stand before you there on the rock of Horeb and you shall strike the rock and the water shall come out of it and the people will drink. And he does so. And the Lord again, in the plain sight of all his people, demonstrates that he is with them and that he is providing for them. He's not going to let them perish. Now, the New Testament draws a straight line from this rock, this rock that Moses strikes to the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 tells us that this rock is a type of our Lord. As a matter of fact, there's been a number of types of our Lord scattered throughout the passage that we've been studying this evening. The manna was a type of the Lord as well. You can think, for instance, of John chapter 6. Uh, when the Lord Jesus Christ told uh, a group of grumbling Jewish people who were gathered there with him that day, uh, look, I am the bread that has come down from heaven. Chapter 7, he goes on to say, if you're thirsty, come to me and drink. First Corinthians chapter 10, Paul says, this rock is a type of the Lord Jesus Christ. And you might think for yourself, how is it a type of the, of the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, it's a type of the Lord Jesus Christ because it's in this rock. It is in this rock and what the Lord does with it that all the people who were gathered around could look and behold the Lord's grace and the Lord's provision for his people. And friends, if you're here this evening and you need a reassurance, if you're like these people and you constantly, or like me too, needing a reassurance of God's goodness, of His grace, of His mercy towards you, look at the Lord Jesus Christ and say with the New Testament, how will He not give us all things if He has not given, as He has given us His Son? As we look upon the Lord Jesus, we look upon in that most glorious, that most wonderful way, the protection of our Lord as he takes the wrath that is destined to be directed towards sinners upon himself. We see his protection, we see his provision as he provides for us all that is necessary for our spiritual life and godliness as he gives us, as it were, his own righteousness. He obeys in our place. It's there that we see in the most perfect way that our God is with us and that he will not forsake us. It's there that we see God and man united for all eternity. That rock, this manna, these pictures 
are all very fitting pictures of our Savior. And it's important for us to understand that as we begin to close this evening. Because the New Testament also draws a parallel between the people of Israel and us in this very situation, does it not? We've already referenced one of them in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. We could go to, uh, for instance, Hebrews chapter 3 and 4 as well. But the, the New Testament loves to describe the church of the Lord Jesus Christ as being the wandering wilderness people of God, as one author puts it. As being God's people being led by him through the wilderness of this present evil age on our way to a glorious promised land. And on this journey, the Lord makes provision for us in the Lord Jesus Christ. And just like he gave the people of Israel visible signs uh, of his provision for them as he gave them that offer of of manna to keep before them as they wandered in the wilderness, so he's even given us a sign that lay before us right now. He's given us a picture, a reminder of how it is that he has provided and how it is that he sustains us in our Savior. Friends, it's fitting tonight that we partake of this supper and that we remember what our God has done for us in the Lord Jesus Christ. Because surely, even as he demonstrated to these people, as he tested them and as he brought them through trials, that he is a God who protects and who provides for and who is always present with his covenant people, so he has shown us that very lesson, even most perfectly and most gloriously in our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Thus, let us go forth from this place. Even as we hear this reminder and as we eat this bread and we drink this wine, let us go forth from this place ready to walk by faith and not by sight. Even as we face the trials and the wildernesses, the dangers of this world, let us remember always the God that we trust. And let us take heart and let us renew even our obedience and our desire to live out of this reality, out of this knowledge, this week. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we come to you, Father, again reminded of who you are. We come to you, O Lord, again reminded of your patience, of your grace, again reminded of your protection, of your provision, again reminded of your presence with us. We thank you, O Lord, that you show us by your word how you have done all these things that were needful for us in the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray, Father, that you would help us leave this place, desire us to conform our lives more and more into the image of your matchless Son. We pray this in his name. Amen.